Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. We uh, got a little sidetracked last week, and I think that's okay. But uh, if you want to start turning there today, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 20. And if you remember our last trip through 1 Samuel 19, we had two types or representations that we examined. Uh, one was Jonathan, and, and the other was Saul. Saul represented um, all who would reject the one true king. Those who would live their own lives under their own will and say nuts to the king of the universe. Jonathan, on the other hand, represented those who would someday accept God's king. Those who would bend the knee of their will and acknowledge the kingship of Jesus Christ. And we ended mentioning that even though we may be believers, we may be Jonathans, we still had a little bit of Saul in us, didn't we? That is to say, we all have areas in our lives where we say, uh, my will be done, not thy will be done. And I hope you took a look at your own life over the last couple weeks and, and you opened up those secret places in your heart where you stashed those little dark secrets there. All the, all the things that you know about, maybe your spouse doesn't even know about. Things that if they were to be flashed up here on the, the big screen in front of the whole church, any one of us would get pretty uncomfortable, maybe a little embarrassed. When you found those spots, I hope you prayed for God to work on your heart, to work on your sanctification as you draw nearer to heaven, that sanctification being uh, Christ taking us and making us more in his image every day. Right? We're justified when we're saved. We are being sanctified now. If you did that this week, you may have realized something. It's not always easy or comfortable to submit your will to the will of the king. It can be a difficult process. In fact, some of you may have looked at those areas and said, this is impossible. I'll never be free of my anger or my lust or my pride. I'll just learn to cover it up a bit better. After all, it's just a little sinny sin sin, right? I'll put a little lipstick on the pig. Doctor it up a little bit to play down in my heart how terrible it is that this sin looks to God. Today I want to give you a picture of, of what is expected of us as those, uh, uh, those of us who are believers, right? We're not called to put the lipstick on the pig. We, we were called to uh, look at this submission that, that is required of those of us who claim that Jesus is their king and what it will cost. Our models today will, of course, be Jonathan again and David. As I read our passage today, listen for the submission to God's will that they display. Is it partial? Is it half-hearted? Is it full of rationales and also listen to what it costs them what what does it cost them let's see we're going to look at first uh, samuel starting in uh, chapter 20 there verse 1 then david fled from naoth in ramah and came and said to jonathan what have i done what is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life he said to him far from it you shall not die behold my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Yet David bowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, or he will be grieved. But truly as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. So David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon. And I ought to sit down and eat with the king, but let me go, and that I may hide myself in the field until the third evening. 
if your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked to leave of me and, and to run to the city of Bethlehem because it is the yearly sacrifice there for the whole family. If he says it is good, your servant will be saved. But if he is very angry, know that he has decided on evil. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is iniquity in me, put me to death yourself. For why then should you bring me to your father? Jonathan said, Far be it from you. For if I should indeed learn that evil has been decided by my uh, father to come upon you, then would I not tell you about it? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So both of them went out into the field. Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, or the third day, behold, if there is a good feeling toward David, shall I not then sin to you and make it known to you? If it pleases my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not make it known to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. Jonathan made David vow again because his, of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. When you have stayed for three days, you shall go down quickly and come to the place where you hid yourself on that eventful day, and you shall remain by the stones as long. I will shoot three arrows to the side, as though I shot at a target. And behold, I will send the lad, saying, Go find the arrows. If I specifically say to the lad, Behold, the arrows are on this side of you, get them. Then come, for there is safety for you, and no harm if the Lord lives. But if I say to the youth, Behold, the arrows are beyond you, go, for the Lord has sent you away. As for the agreement of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between me and you forever. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat new food. The king sat on his seat as usual, the seat by the wall. Then Jonathan rose up, and Abner sat down by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not speak anything that day, for he thought, it is an accident. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. It came about the next day, the second day of the new moon, that David's place was empty. So Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why has the son of Jesse not come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan then answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. For he said, Please let me go, since my uh, family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to attend. And now, if I found favor in your sight, please let me get away, that I may see my brothers. For this reason he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. But Jonathan answered Saul his father and said to him, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. And Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did not eat food on the second day of the new moon. For he was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. 
Now it came about in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field for the appointment with David, and the little lad was with him. He said to his lad, Run, now find the arrows which I am about to shoot. As the lad was running, he shot an arrow past him. When the lad reached the place of the arrow which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the lad, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. And Jonathan's lad picked up the arrow and came to his master. But the lad was not aware of anything. Only Jonathan and David knew about the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the lad and said to him, Go, bring them to the city. When the lad was gone, David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the more. Jonathan said to David, Go in safety, inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for your guidance. We pray for your words. We pray for your truth to be proclaimed here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So today is a continuation of the story of Saul's open curse on David. He tried and failed to kill David four times in our last chapter. The, the Holy Spirit actually had to intervene on that fourth time. And if you remember, Saul sent out messengers a.k.a. assassins, right? Not postal service guys, but assassins. Uh, and the first batch went and they prophesied before the Lord. So he sent a second batch and they prophesied before the Lord. So he sent a third batch and he prophesied before the Lord. So finally Saul comes out there himself and he strips down and prophesies before the Lord all the rest of that day and that night. And we pick up here, at some point during Saul's undressing and prophesying, uh, David took that as an opportunity to escape. He fled, and he went back to Jonathan. And today we're going to move through this passage a little more quickly than usual, so we're going to summarize in chunks, because we need to get to the application for portion. But we see right here in verses 1 through 5, uh, David has fled. He runs to Jonathan. He says, what have I done? What is my iniquity? David has been an upright uh, soldier in Saul's army. He's had many victories. He has not uh, transpired against the king. And uh, the king just hates him. And we get that today sometimes, too. I don't know if you've ever had the experience or, or seen the experience of, of someone that just hates someone because they love Jesus. They walk into a situation, the person says, I love Jesus, and they say, I hate you. They don't even know it. They just know that they hate Jesus. And that's what Saul is doing here. Jonathan, if, if you remember at the beginning of the last chapter, um, Jonathan doesn't quite believe him because he had a talk with the old man in the last chapter, right? He sat him down. He said, Dad, what you're doing is not right. You're, you're, you're proposing murder here. And you remember what Saul said to him. As the Lord lives, David will surely not be put to death. All right, so Jonathan thinks everything's on the up and up. But David says, no, no, no. No, no, no. Maybe it was something in his voice or his logic. But whatever it is, David convinces Jonathan that he should at least check to see if the threat was real. And David ends with this statement, there is hardly a step between me and death. Has this reality ever become so real to you that it shakes you to the core? I was driving to work one day, and I was going up Highway 4 there, you know, right up the hill there, and the company I was working for uh, did some 
cameras and alarm work at, at the big San Marco apartments there. So I glanced over at it, you know, just looking over at it, and I turned back. And about the time I turned back, I noticed the car in front of me, the bumper of that car is even with my face. They have locked their brakes up so harshly that they're just doing that. So I go to reach for my brake, and I'm wearing dress shoes, and I hit the brake, and my foot goes whoop, and it slips right off the brake pedal. Bumper's getting closer. I jerk the wheel to the left. Now, I was all the way in the fast lane now. So I jerk into the, the side there. Medium. Medium, thank you. Jerk right into there. And as I'm looking, I see that bumper. It's still up in the air. This guy's still tired, smoking. Stop. And I see that bumper just pass by my meter. I swear it hadn't been that far. And now I'm in, now I'm on the shoulder. And I'm doing 65 on the shoulder next to a line of parked cars that all stopped. And my car starts to fishtail. I got a concrete wall on this side. I got parked cars on this side. I'm going 65 fishtailing down the shoulder. By the grace of God, I managed to pull that back in and cut back into traffic as traffic had started moving further on. But I will tell you for the rest of the morning, I was pretty worthless. <laughs> I went to work and I sat at my desk and you know, the, <laughs> we are all within a step of death. Life is not a guarantee for us. And no one gets out of this thing alive. When I was in youth group, <laughs> we had this uh, movie that we watched, and it was this old cheesy. So I was in youth group in the, geez, it would have been the late 80s, right? And they, we had this VHS for those kids that are still in here. That's a cassette tape, right? <laughs> push it in, and you know, and if you forget to rewind it, you have to sit there and wait for it to rewind. And there was this video, and, and there was about this uh, youth meeting, and there was a kid there that wasn't saved. And uh, you also got to go to heaven and see in heaven. And they had one of those, you know, those orbs where you touch it and the lightning goes to your finger, you know. And it was all fancy and there'd be people in robes and they're supposed to be angels, you know. And they're saying, he must, he must hurry or his time is short, you know. And the, the kids at the youth meeting and they say, you know, you need to be saved. You, if, you, if you die tonight, where would you go? And the kid's like, ah, I've got plenty of time. And he goes out and he gets in his car and he, he ends up getting into an accident. And the, the final scene is this, this kid and it, He's in hell, but it's like paper, paper planes, you know, all around him. And he's like, no. <laughs> as goofy as that video was, it was reality. We are all one step from death. And the good news is, if you're like the guy in the youth group video, you haven't accepted Christ in your life, you can do it today. You're only one step from salvation. We're only one step from death. We're only one step from salvation. Jesus said he will save all who repent and turn to him. Amen. But it's a lifelong commitment. And we're going to learn more about what it costs. But the benefits are out of this world. If you accept Christ as Lord and Savior here on this world, you will get those benefits. But don't wait. Time and tide wait for no man. Back to our passage here. Uh, David has a plan, right? He says, uh, we're, tomorrow's the, the festival. It's a new moon festival. The Israelites didn't use calendars like we do. They didn't have the Gregorian calendar. They actually went through cycles of the moon. And so their days were a little, or their years were a little bit longer than ours. And so at the new moon, when there was no moon up there, or maybe just a little sliver, right, that was the new moon festival. And they would have feasts, and, and they would uh, 
worship the Lord and whatnot. So David says there's this festival. I'm supposed to be there. We know Saul would have been ticked off if, if people weren't there. That should have been there. And, and David was a general in Saul's army, so he should definitely be there. And he says, hey, I'll just I'll play hooky. And we'll see what we'll see how angry that makes your dad. Right? And he says, what I want you to do is, is I want you to go in there and see for me. See for me what your dad does. And this is important. We need to think about what David is asking Jonathan to do here. See, up until this point, David, or Jonathan has, has defended David in an upfront way. He's gone to his dad. He said, why are you doing this? Don't do this. But now David is asking him to actively test his father. And in testing his father, put his own life in jeopardy. We move on and there in verse 8. And he says, therefore, deal kindly with your servant. For you have brought your servant into a covenant with the Lord with you. Remember the last chapter, they actually, they made a covenant together to watch out for each other. They, they cut the animals in half. They put them on either side. They walked through the middle. And the, the thought there is, if either one of us harms the other, may we be like these animals that are cut in half. Right? So David reminds him of the covenant there. And then says, if there's iniquity in me, just kill me now. Don't worry about taking your father. If there's something wrong, if I've done wrong, just kill me now. Jonathan says, no. No. And I will tell you if my father is going to hurt you. Then David says, well, who's going to tell me? How are we, how are we going to? I want some specifics here. So Jonathan says to David, he looks around, he says, let's go out into the field. Right? It's a little crowded in here. Lots of, lots of ears around. So they got out in the field there, and um, they go through the plan. Verse 13, he says, If it pleases my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan and more, if I do not make it known to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. And then there's this last little bit of that verse 14 there. And may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. That's a huge statement. Jonathan there is acknowledging that he knows David will be king, not Jonathan. Think about what Jonathan is giving up here. Power, prestige, wealth. But what does that compare with doing the will of the Lord? <laughs> he makes a little covenant there. He says, if I'm still alive, will you not show me? In verse 14, the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die. Excuse me. Uh, standard practice back then, you have a king, the king dies. A new king comes in. What do you do with the old king's family? You get rid of them, right? Because you don't want somebody popping up and saying, "I should be the king, not this guy." <laughs> so David and Jonathan make a covenant that says David will watch out for Jonathan's family; that he won't kill them. Again, acknowledging that David will be king. <clears throat> Jonathan made a vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. It's interesting at the, the beginning of this conversation, David was the one reminding Jonathan of the covenant. Remember that? And we get here, and Jonathan reminds David of the covenant. So Jonathan hatches a little plan. He says, yeah, tomorrow's the new moon. We're going to do this. I want you to hide. I'll shoot some arrows. Depending on what I say, where those arrows go, you'll know whether to run or to stay. And the new moon comes, and the, and the first night... 
David's not there, and Saul looks around, and he says, well, it must be an accident. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. Right? Which that, that, that could have happened. There are several laws about cleanliness, right? If you touch a dead body, um, marital sex, any, any sort of that stuff would make you unclean for a period of time. So maybe David just didn't calculate it in his brain enough, and so he's not here tonight for the, the festival. The second day comes, and David's empty again. And look at what Saul says to Jonathan. He can't even bring himself to say the name David. He says, Where, why is the son of Jesse not coming to the meal, either yesterday or today? So Jonathan gives him the, uh, the line that he worked with David there, but he, he, we don't know if it was a mistake or if he just included it in there. But in the Hebrew there, you see that little part that says, please let me get away that I may see my brothers. That Hebrew phrase is the same exact Hebrew phrase that Saul said to Michal when he said, why did you let David get away? It's escape. Why did you let David escape? And so Jonathan says uh, right here, would you, uh, please let me escape that I may see my brothers. And Saul is angry. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. There's more translations to that. I'm not going to share them with you. But it's not a good thing, right? He's angry. He's angry. He even brings his mom into it. And then you see right here in verse 31. Up until this point, Saul has been working behind the scenes. He hasn't said the quiet part out loud yet. But now he's going to say the quiet part loud, right? He says, for as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now send him and bring him to me, for he must surely die. If ever there was, a, if ever there was like a, a pinnacle point, this is the point right here where Jonathan could go, you know what, the old man has a point. If David's still alive, I lose all this. He's hiding out in the field now. Go get him. Right? This is the pinnacle point. But look at what Jonathan does. He's so godly and so upright. He says, he says, why should he be put to death? What has he done? And then Saul, I, I swear, you think by now they would have hidden the spears from this guy? <laughs> the guy just chucks spears at everybody. It's like, I don't know. Maybe make them disappear. We do that with our kids, right? They got a toy that's annoying. You hide it so they can't find it. <laughs> Saul takes his spear and he hurls it at him to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. Folks, if, if, if you're an angry person, you go to work and you're angry at work, you get in your car and you're angry in your car, you come to church and you're angry at church, it will eventually harm your loved ones. That anger will come out. That's what happened to Saul here. He threw a spear at his son. And Jonathan rises up from the table in fierce anger. And just on a little side note here, here's some biblical fasting for you. We talked about that last week, right? He did not eat food on the second day of the new moon. Why? He wasn't trying to get God to do something for him. He was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. He was overcome, overwhelmed with his father's unrighteous angry towards David. He forgets all about food. Just heartbroken over the sin of his father. So in verse 35 there we see they, they go through the whole uh, arrow shooting thing. 
the, the arrows are beyond you, run away. Gives the arrows to the lad, tells him to go back, and David comes out. And David still showing submission. Still showing, look, when the lad was gone, David rose from the south side, fell on his face to the ground, and bowed three times. Still showing that Jonathan was still the prince. He was still in charge. And they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the more. Whenever I think about David and Jonathan, I think about that fox and the hound. You ever see that? We're here the best of friends. You know? <laughs> it always reminds me of that. It was, this is sad. I, I mean, we get just like a, a verse of it. Like, these are two soulmates. They love the Lord with all their heart. They love each other with all their heart. They're the best friends ever. And now they have to separate. Jonathan will, will bump into him one other time, just, just briefly. But for the rest of Jonathan's life, he's separated from David. Not the rest of David's life, but the rest of Jonathan's life, David's separated from Jonathan. And Jonathan says, the Lord will be between me and you, and between my descendants and your descendants forever. One last task of reassurance. Right? And then look at the, the, the amazing statement here. Your descendants forever. What an amazing insight Jonathan had. Not only did he know that David would be king, he also knew that David's kingdom would last forever. And I can't say for 100% sure that Jonathan knew the Messiah would come from David's line. But Jonathan looked unflinchingly at the future of his friend and knew that God would be with David's house forever. Oh, that Jonathan's father would have had one-tenth of that insight. Things would have been a lot more pleasant for Jonathan and David. You see, from this point on, for like the next 10 years, the Lord's anointed king, the king from whose line would come the one true king, Jesus Christ, was going to run. He was going to be hunted. He was going to be threatened. He was going to be betrayed. He was going to live in caves and in mountains. And even at one point with Israel's enemy, the Philistines, kind of faith does it take to do that? To not give up after countless battles and years of the threat of death. I don't know about you, but if, if the line at La Costa is too long, I complain about it. Right? For Ten years? That better be a good burrito. And even forgetting the ten years, think about Jonathan. He's raised as the king's son. Everywhere he went, people would talk to him as if he were going to be the next king. He was surrounded by the benefits of royalty. And yet, when he senses God's will, he's willing to walk away from it all without a second thought. Do we serve our Lord in the same way today? Do we truly understand the cost of serving God? Do we understand that just like there was a price for Jonathan to pay to have peace with David, there is a price that we must pay to have peace with God. And what did Jonathan have to give up? Everything. His entire kingdom. And all the rights and privileges contained within. I would argue that I have not at times served this way. And my suspicion is I'm not here alone. The problem with the American church today is that we don't understand 
the great truth found in 1 Peter 2.24. That is to say that Jesus Christ died on the cross so that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. Or to put it another way, Jesus is not seeking a part of our life, a part of our time, a part of our man, uh, uh, mind. He's demanding all of it. C.S. Lewis explains it in a great way in his book, Mere Christianity. He explains that Christians living in the half world of, of trying to live for Christ and trying to live for the world at the same time, while reserving a portion of their old life, it's not what Christ expected for. Instead, listen to what he has to say about true Christian life. He says, the Christian way is different, harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think are innocent, as well as the ones that you think are wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. There is a cost for peace with the one true king. And that cost is our worldly life. And this is what Jonathan is displaying in our passage today. He is sacrificing his old life, his life as the prince, the life of power for God's kingdom. But what does that mean for us? Do we have any princes or princesses here? No? So what are we asked to give? Our lives. And when I say our lives, I'm not talking about life such as life or death, although that may be required at some point. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm talking about our life such as how do we live day to day? What do we do with our time? How do we treat those around us? In what things do we find pleasure? What things do we hate? It can even mean who are your friends? And unlike our passage today where we see Jonathan giving up the kingdom once or twice, we are called to give up this life daily. Mark, or excuse me, Jesus described this in Mark 8:34 as taking up your cross daily to follow him. Take up that, that horrible instrument of, of death, your cross, and daily nail your old life to it. And the reason Jesus tells us to do this daily is because we are constantly changing, or at least we should be every day getting a little closer to how Jesus would have us live. To the point that if you are a maturing Christian, the sins that bother you now would never have crossed your mind 5, 10, 15 years ago. The moments that you don't spend with Christ in prayer or reading your Bible, now, if you're a maturing Christian, bother you. You find yourself seeking God and when you're bogged down with life and don't seek him, feel it. Because our life is not our own. This is what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
you are a believer here today, your life is not your own. We are God's own possession. And we have been given this great task to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you. And it's at this point that I want to turn our attention back to our passage today. Specifically back to David, God's anointed, or God's own possession. Understanding that the years that passed between David's anointing and David actually becoming king are many. And they are painful. And they are full of sorrow. And it doesn't make sense. God anointed him. God said he was going to be king. So is God punishing David? And I say that because the thought process that we as human beings have goes a little like this. I've given my life to Christ. I'm daily seeking to kill my will and replace it with Christ's. And, and this is what God has asked me to do. So what I should see from here on out is blue skies, smooth sailing, a happy life, free from turmoil, pain, and sickness. I mean, I'm doing what God says to do, right? And the second we encounter something terrible in our life, and I'm not talking about a stubbed toe or a bent fender. I'm talking about when something truly horrific happens in our lives, a loss of some sorts, whether sickness or, or some sort of financial or relational tragedy. What's our first inclination? God is punishing me. I'm not trying hard enough. I'm not doing enough. God must be mad. And the image comes to mind of this very angry, bearded man up in heaven casting lightning bolts down on us. Because if I'm not experiencing the anger of God, why am I going through this? But the reality is, church, if our life is not our own, and God is in charge of all that happens to us, there must be a reason. Why would David be forced to flee and hide and live in caves? Or to bring it to today, why would I be forced to deal with a loss? I would like again to turn to a quote from C.S. Lewis here. I think it captures our thoughts very well. This, this is again from uh, Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis says this. When a man turns to Christ and seems to be getting on pretty well, in the sense that some of his bad habits are now corrected, he often feels that it would now be natural if things went fairly smoothly. When troubles come along, illnesses, money troubles, new kinds of temptations, he is disappointed. These things, he feels, might have been necessary to rouse him and to make him to repent in his bad old days, but why now? Because God is forcing him on, or up, to a higher level, putting him into situations where he will have to be very much braver, or more patient, or more loving than he ever dreamed of being before. It seems to us all unnecessary, but that is because we have not yet had the slightest notion of the tremendous things he means to make of us. I find I must borrow yet another parable from George MacDonald. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. 
and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. So you see that when we become Christians, we may think that God is going to patch us up, give us a good washing, and send us back out again. But God never intended that. Turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, starting in verse 2. James is going to open up here, and he's going to say in verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That perfect and complete is our sanctification. So our trials come along, and, and they, they, they try our faith. They put our faith in a crucible, and they heat it up. And they scrape off all the, the, the stuff that's not made of faith, and they scrape that away, and you're left with a perfect and complete you see, God's priorities are not the things of this world. In that if it's not a part of his plan for your sanctification, it doesn't matter whether I drive a Porsche or a Pinto. It doesn't matter if my kitchen is up to date with the latest model of appliances or my TV is the biggest possible size so I can watch endless hours of whatever it is I watch. His primary concern is not that I go to the best college or get the best job, he is concerned that I be ready to leave this world and transition to heaven. Right. He is concerned about my relationship with him. Right. And so in that, God will use the things of this world to further his plan in every believer. And I say this with great care because I do not want to represent, misrepresent God. Well, God cares about his children and the trials that they suffer through, he does use tragedy to strengthen his believers, Amen. to produce a faith that endures. And that's a hard thing to say to you. This isn't easy to preach, because I know you all. And I've heard some of the pain that folks in our family here are going through. And my heart cries out to God in prayer for you, weekly, sometimes daily, sometimes even many times throughout my day. But there are two cold, hard facts that we need to look full in the face of this morning. First, Jesus doesn't want to put away part of our old life. He wants to kill it in order to raise us to new life in his image. And second, when a believer faces tragedy and loss in this life, we can take comfort in the fact that God is in control and there is a reason you are sick. There is a reason you lost your job. There is a reason you lost that loved one. Romans 8.28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And it's God's reason. Meaning we may never understand why this side of heaven. 
we can be assured that God is using this situation to refine us, to burn away the areas of our life where our faith is weak, and to rebuild those areas in his image. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't care about our tragedy as some cold, robotic entity up in heaven moving wooden chess pieces around a board. God absolutely cares about his children and feels our pain when we are hurting. You remember the story of Jesus resurrecting Lazarus. You can look it up in John chapter 11 this afternoon. But Jesus comes to where the, the Lazarus is buried, and he looks around and he sees everyone crying, and he knows full well he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows it. He's, he's been saying he's going to do it the whole chapter. But he knows this is going to happen, but he looks around and he sees everybody crying and weeping and wailing. And what does Jesus do? He cries with them. He feels our pain. God loves us with a fierce love, a love that cannot be contained. And yet, three times in that passage, Jesus mentions that what is happening to Lazarus, meaning his sickness and his death, is so that the Son of Man may be glorified. If you are here today and you're going through something that is overwhelming or tragic or devastating, please hear me. I have been there. I have had the days that pour by like concrete and the nights that never seem to end. I have experienced the feeling of being alone in a crowded room and of withering away slowly while everyone else's life swirls all around me. And I'm not giving you some trite piece of information today. You're suffering because it's God's plan. Chin up, little buckaroo. What I'm trying to say is that in your life, you will experience tragedy or loss. It is inevitable. And in those times, we need to draw real close to Jesus. We need to rest in his word and trust in the promises within and never lose faith in the God that loves us. So much so that he sent his only son to die for us, to take our place and to have the wrath of God for every sinful and wicked thing that each one of us did poured out on him on that cross. And when we face tragedies in life, we need to make Romans 8, 35 through 39 our theme verse of those days. When we hold near to Christ and go through that storm, read Romans 8, 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage today. We thank you for the examples that you've given us through Jonathan and David. And, and Lord, we, we pray that you would give us the strength to live up to those examples that you would give us the strength to 
killed the old life in us, Lord, to daily put that up on a cross and submit to your will. Lord, we pray that when tragedy comes, and it will come, life is not an assurance for anyone. I was at a celebration of life for a 17-year-old little girl yesterday who thought she had the whole world in front of her. Lord, life is not a guarantee. But we pray, Lord, that when we run into those tragedies, that our faith would be strong, that we would cling to you, and through it, we would become stronger and more Christ-like. Lord, I pray that you would watch over us this week as we go our separate ways. Keep your word in our minds. Help us to dwell on it, to meditate on it, and to grow from it, Lord. We will give you all the honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.